Welcome, everybody. I'm Mike Sag. Uh, it's great to be here, and I, I love the fact that uh, in the polling, a, a lot of you are just getting into treatment with hepatitis C, so these first two lectures um, are going to kind of get everybody on the same page. So those of you who have been doing this for a while, bear with us while we review some basic uh, background. But then as we get into the cases and the treatment, it'll become very clear. Um, I think when everybody leaves here today, uh, everybody will feel much more comfortable in understanding hepatitis C and diagnosing it and staging it and treating it. So that's the goal of the workshop today. And like we've already started, uh, having this dialogue. That's why it's a workshop rather than just kind of a formal lecture in a large room. So I'm going to do the basics in the overview. So I've had uh, some conflicts here uh, in terms of scientific advisor or an investigator with the following companies. So we're going to go over the genotypes of HCV and how they relate to treatment. Uh, we're going to stage HCV, although that's more uh, Dr. Kim is going to be doing that. Um, talk about uh, the uh, advanced liver disease a little bit, but mostly defer that to Dr. Kim. Uh, go over the emerging treatments, and Dr. Kaiser will be covering how that's applied in cases. And I think if you leave the, if you leave the room with nothing else, know about the hepatitis C website, because that'll get you through everything. Uh, the tables are great. We probably ought to just have a workshop on how to use the website. But uh, if you if you have that website, we'll go over it. I'll give you the we'll give it to you over and over again. It's everything you need with nice tables. That you, all you need to know is the genotype and the level of fibrosis, and you're good to go. Okay, so let's just do a little uh, sort of exercises here. Um, which test most accurately stages liver fibrosis? Go ahead and vote. Maestro. I don't hear it. Oh. The spake Zarathustra. Okay, yeah, liver biopsy is the most accurate, but it's also the most painful. Um, and, and so we don't use it much anymore, and as Arthur will talk about, we're using a lot of FibroScan if you have it. But, excuse me, and then FibroSure and APRI are what you can use if you don't have access to FibroScan. We'll go over that later. Okay, what percent of persons with chronic HCV develop cirrhosis over 30 years? What would you guess? Yeah, baby. I don't know, I don't do fibrosis. I'm only semi-evil, quasi-evil, the Diet Coke of evil, just one calorie, not quite evil enough. All right, so it, the, the actual answer is the middle one. We'll go over that, 20 to 50%, although there's some debate, but it's, it's probably up to half over 30 years with chronic, chronic HCV. And which genotype is the most common in the U.S.? I'm not going to sing along. You can. There's a lot of ships out there. I don't see one called the Minnow, because I guess it went down years ago. Perfect. All right. Everyone knows that one. Okay, so here's the outline of the next uh, 27 and a half minutes. So uh, let's get going.
the history is really amazing. When you think about the history of infectious diseases, you go back to the 1880s when the microscope was discovered and anthrax was perhaps the first bacteria ever seen. And then it's 50 years before antibiotics and another sort of 30 years before fine-tuned antibiotics. And here we are with non-A, non-B hepatitis kind of being recognized. 1989, the virus is discovered, a flavivirus, uh, that over time they developed something called a replicon assay that they took the technologies developed really in the AIDS uh, drug development world and found small molecules that inhibited uh, different uh, parts of the HCV genome. And remarkably, as we'll talk about, <laughs> the names of the drugs are protease inhibitors and non-nukes and nukes, and it sounds very, very familiar because it is. It's the same sort of concepts, such that interferon was the first drug used, and then they added ribavirin because ribavirin had spent quite a while just trying to find a disease to treat. And it didn't work in most of anything else, maybe some RSV, maybe, maybe a little bit of HIV, not well. But then it found a home in, in hepatitis C when matched up with interferon, but very toxic and horrible uh, side effects. And so by 2010 or so, these direct acting agents uh, started to come around full speed. And just in a matter of less than 30 years, it's pretty remarkable. And there's genotypes of different types all over the world, but the actual number of people infected is about 170 million in the world. Asia and Africa have the highest rates. Egypt, over 15% of their population. And it's about three to four million in the United States. And this is just a nice little map showing how genotypes vary. Most everyone in the group knew that it was genotype one in the US, but in Egypt, a lot more genotype four. Uh, is present, or if you go into areas in the Middle East, it's genotype three, as you can see. So it's just important to note that they're just a wide distribution. And the treatments in the past with the direct acting agents used to matter, uh, but now it doesn't matter quite as much because there's a lot more what's called pangenotypic agents. The treatment cascade, so we see this in HIV, so like everything else in hepatitis C, it's just adopted copied, pasted, and then put it on a slide. And so there's a lot of people infected. A large majority, or not a large, but a fair majority don't know their status. And I think we've done ourselves a disservice um, by focusing on the baby boomers because it's really everyone should be tested. It's not that expensive. And we've been doing it in our emergency department and finding a pretty good spike among people 20 to 29 years old um, who are mostly Caucasian, uh, who are coming into our ER infected with HCV and not knowing it. So I would argue everyone should be tested at least once, just like with HIV. And then getting access to care is all about really, in my opinion, um, insurance status and ability to pay. Uh, and at least here in Medicaid, you've got uh, more leniency. The timing could have been a little bit better. I mean, it could have been here but still the timing in terms of preventing predicted deaths out to 2030 is perfect. But if you work backwards, that means we're in a bit of a, an urgency here to get people treated to prevent this downstream mortality and morbidity. Stop requiring liver transplants, reduce all that type of thing. So to do this, it means all hands on deck. If you took 
all the hepatologists, there's not nearly enough of them to even see all the transplants hardly, right? And then you've got GI docs, and a lot of them are more interested in scoping appropriately because they get paid more, I guess, than they are taking care of hep C. Um, but even if you took all of them and all the ID docs, we probably don't still have enough providers. So it really is going to be primary care, in my opinion, and it can easily be done, shown over and over again, <clears throat> that federally qualified health centers are very, very good. The internist family docs are very good at picking up this information and applying it. And the beauty of that is you don't have to refer the patient out. So that's the ideal, but we've got to get there quickly. Um, we'll talk later about uh, some of the social issues, about payment, <clears throat> excuse me, and that type of thing. So what's the natural history? This is one of the questions. <clears throat> when somebody gets infected, they have acute, they may or may not have acute symptoms, but they often get a transaminitis. And about 15% or so of those individuals just resolve it on their own, and you know that because you test them for hepatitis C antibody, it's positive, then you check for uh, viral RNA, and it's negative. That means they cleared it, nothing more to do. And Arthur will talk about that a little bit more. Then they become what's called chronic. If they have detectable virus six months after infection, they're going to remain infected uh, and producing virus for the rest of their life unless they get treated. About over 30 years, about 80% of them might be stable, but at least 20%, and that can go up to 50%, depending on the study and the situation, um, will go on to develop cirrhosis. And the things that accelerate it are concomitant HIV infection, HBV infection, alcohol use, and then NASH, or steatosis. Once they get cirrhosis, about 6%, Arthur's going to talk about this in the next lecture, they'll go to end-stage liver disease, and they'll either die or get a transplant, or hepatocellular carcinoma. Interesting thing about hep C is that it's really only the, the stage 4 fibrosis patients who get hep C-associated hepatocellular carcinoma. So if they have stage 1 or 2, they're not going to develop HCC as a rule, or stage 3. And that's not the case with hepatitis B. You can get hepatocellular carcinoma really at almost any stage of, of fibrosis, more commonly with NASH or with um, advanced cirrhosis, but it can happen earlier. What about the staging? Again, this is a precursor to uh, Arthur's talk, but I think from the back of the room you can see that this, the blue, that is the uh, amount of fibrosis and the portal triads getting complete uh, surrounding of the, of the uh, triad by scarring is cirrhosis. And you can see progression. This has a fair amount of fat in it, but uh, you start seeing at the portal triads here um, some degree of, of uh, cirrhosis or scarring happening, and then bridging in the third one. So, and, and Arthur will talk about how to stage. Um, what about the genome and the targets? All right, so this is an RNA virus, and it's, you can think HIV and you'll have most of it. It's a non-kilobase uh, virus, check. Um, it replicates rapidly. HIV, 1 to 10 billion viruses a day. Hepatitis C, 100 billion to a trillion viruses a day. Factory. Um, it's, I can go on and on. The drugs we talked about, et cetera. But the huge difference is that there is no proviral state in the nucleus. It does not integrate. Therefore, unlike HIV, this is curable. 
readily curable. And so the virus comes in, stays in the cytoplasm, and at every one of these steps, sort of like with HIV, <coughs> there are ways that we can interfere with either the nucleoside, nucleotide inhibitors or protease inhibitors. And then what's unique uh, to HCV that HIV doesn't have is this NS5A inhibitor, which is uh, focusing on assembly and um, uh, compilation of the virus for uh, uh, infectivity and release from the cell. And the NS5A inhibitors really are the anchor drugs. We'll talk about those in a second. This is where the genome and the, the uh, concepts come from. So you have the NS3A uh, region, which is where the protease, protease 4A region, where the protease inhibitors work, NS5A, which are just called NS5A inhibitors. And then you have the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, where the nukes and the non-nukes work. How do you keep them straight? Easy. This is one thing they've really done well, right? So you don't have to be a pharmacologist to keep this straight. You just focus on the suffix. If it's prevere, it's a protease inhibitor, right? If it's buvir, it's an NS5, it's an NS5B, a nuke or non-nuke. And then my favorite, asvir, is an NS5A. So they'll pat asvir, right? Sofosbuvir, semeprevir. So this way, one of the questions that you got sort of gets to that. And by the time you finish, just heard this part, you'll get that one right. That's an easy question for you now. And then here they are, and they're, as you can tell, um, they're becoming uh, more and more combos of, across the different types. These are the non, there's only really one non-nuke here, um, uh, the sabbuvir. But the nukes are really sofosbuvir, um, and that's the main one. Uh, so, so you can see the different uh, variations. One thing to remember, um, the, the NS5B nukes, there's hardly ever resistance to it, hardly ever. And just like with HIV, there can be a fair amount of resistance, at least developing, to the protease inhibitor, and some to the NS5A. As we'll talk about in the penultimate lecture today, um, it's not like HIV in the sense that resistance doesn't necessarily equal non-activity. It's, it's a little strange concept, but we'll throw that at you later. Kinetics, this is mostly a carry forward from the interferon era because we were poisoning people for 48 weeks. Did I say that? Yeah. And we were making them really sick and you didn't want to continue that if there was futility. So they had early stopping rules based on rapid virologic response and early virologic response. We don't use these terms anymore. The reason I put them up here is that so that if you hear the terms, you'll at least know what they're referring back to. And no response obviously means that there wasn't hardly any change and you'd stop therapy at week four or week eight if you saw that. A partial response means you didn't get quite enough of a change and then if you had these early ones, then you sort of plow ahead and hope for the SVR, so the sustained virologic response, which is a word we still use, a phrase, which means 12 weeks after end of therapy, still no detectable virus. And that's tantamount, it's called a, a sustained virologic response, and that's tantamount to cure. Okay, 
Is it possible that somebody could have a negative uh, test 12 weeks after end of treatment and still rebound? Yes, but it's rare. Happens, but usually not after up to a year. So in our practice now, I've sort of had, instead of bringing them back at three or four months, because why not just bring them back at six to eight months and then just check them then, and then you don't have to worry about it at all, hardly. But some people bring them back at, at the three-week time point, or three-month time point, to check and they see it and they bring them back in a year. Uh, either way is fine. But um. What are the treatments? Well, these are the old treatments and I show this just to point out that if you had a genotype 1, typically not very responsive to PEG interferon. 46% SVR, that's it. But 2,3 was a little bit more responsive. So that kind of got us in the habit of checking genotype and relating it to treatment. Um, and that continues to this day, but we're phasing out of that a little bit now that we have pan-genotypic drugs that are very active. But put this in your head as I'll show you some other data from the DAAs, and it'll kind of blow you away. This is the landscape. Um, they're color-coded based on their um, location of where they act. But again, you know this now, so buvirs are the uh, uh, NS5Bs and aspheres are the NS5As and previrs are the protease inhibitors, but you have the green, purple, et cetera. So through the rest of the day, we're going to be talking about some of the nuances between which type of regimen you might choose in which situation. And I think that's, again, getting a little bit easier in today's world. This we don't hardly use anymore. Now look at this. Remember when I showed you 46%? That's 100%. What? I mean, I remember I was, I didn't go to many liver meetings, but I went to the one where they showed the first sofosfavir trial, and everybody was used to 40% success rates. And also, uh, hepatologists, are, in my mind, they're great people, um, but they're known for two things in my head. One, they always wear a tie and a coat, uh, unlike ID people. And, and secondly, um, they like to argue amongst themselves, and they, you know, very raucous at their, at their meetings and sort of trying to not attack the speaker, but challenge them. This, when they showed this type of slide, the place was stunned silence. I mean, it was like they didn't know quite what to do. And this says end of treatment, SVR, and again, you don't need to be a statistician to say this is important. And that was back in the days of just sofosbuvir and decladosphere. So bye-bye, bye-bye interferon. It wasn't nice while it lasted. Glad that's over. And I'm going to show you a couple slides here just to kind of point out um, in, in DAA-type regimens, these are older data, but they do bring up some points, that if you look at factors that might predict the relative risk of relapse or unsuccessful therapy, these are the kind of things that might pan out. But when you start doing um, multivariable types of analyses, um, the general rule of thumb is those who don't do well were typically treatment experienced people, men as opposed to women, those with a higher weight. Um, we don't use this much anymore. I'm happy to get into it with you, but this is more from the interferon days of the IL-28B haplotype. That they're cirrhotic generally means they're harder to cure. That's very important. And um, higher viral load in the older days, not so much today. 
but cirrhosis is the main thing. And then also, um, there was some uh, uh, challenge with, uh, with race that uh, individuals of, uh, uh, who are uh, non-Caucasian might not have done as well with some of the regimens. But the key point is that when you have multiple of these things present, like none, one, two, three, then you start seeing your success rates falling out. So if you have somebody with a number of these types of um, demographic factors, clinical factors, those are people that you really want to uh, pay attention to, really focus on adherence, because they're the ones who might not be as successfully treated. All right, here's the money slide. This is it. HCVguidelines.org. Once again, that's hcvguidelines.org. In Canada, hcvguidelines.org. <laughs> Everywhere, you know. If you just go there and just spend 10 minutes on the website, mess around with it, and you will be amazed. The graphs, I mean, the graphs, the charts, the tables are fabulous. You can just go up to the top, pick whatever you want, treatment naive, treatment experienced, unique populations, which would include those with renal failure, those with... Um, HCV, HIV co-infection, and that you can transplant patients, which probably none of you will treat, probably shouldn't treat, um, because it's more the hepatologist domain, but treatment naive experience, and then when you do that, it pulls down and all the genotypes appear. You click on it with a person who's non-serotic, click on it with a person who is serotic, and then boom, here comes a chart that tells you everything you need to know. And uh, if you want to read about why something's recommended, it'll have all the references and a great description of why they did what they did. And perhaps even more important, when you go to unique populations and you click on HIV, you scroll all the way to the bottom, and there is a drug-drug interaction table that I call a Kaisergram from our lead host here today. And I feel like Vanna White. Yeah, there you go. So let's get into some of the details, and then I'll wrap up. So. One of the newer agents is, uh, combos is uh, glucaprevir versus pibrintesvir. Pibrintesvir, GP is what I like to call it. Um, so in that combination, which of the following is true? And for those of you um, who don't know what the hell I'm talking about right now, just take a guess. Oh, how does a bastard orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean, improvident, impoverished, and squalor, grew up to be a hero and a scholar. All right, here we go. Oops, whooped and show. Yep, there we go. Okay, let's just kind of walk through these. It is not a single pill, it's three pills, but it is once daily. 16-week regimen, nah, that, that isn't true. But if you went to the website, you would, you would figure that out. Um, it actually can be an eight-week regimen in people that are protease inhibitor experienced. It is a 12-week regimen um, in the presence of cirrhosis, uh, typically. So that means that answer one is the correct answer. So you, if you have cirrhosis, you can't use it for eight weeks. That was a take-home point. But it is an eight-week drug otherwise. So we're shortening the length of therapy 
in some of the newer drugs, but in a couple of situations with the older drugs in good favorable conditions. So this is just a review of GP, because it's one of the newer ones, and um, Dr. Kaiser will go over all the drugs in practice. But um, pangenotypic, three pills, as I mentioned, um, eight weeks in general for naive patients and for some experienced patients. Lots of different RASs. Now, in HIV, we sort of memorize the M184V. We know K103N. Don't waste your time. Don't even think about it. And I'll give a talk at the end, and it will probably be running short on time, and I'll just blast through and end up telling you, when you have a treatment experience patient and you want to know whether you should order a genotype, go to the website is the take-home point. Um, th th this is important. So it can be used in renal failure, uh, renal insufficiency. It does contain a protease inhibitor. So that's, that's the Prevere, right? Prevere and an Aspir in this one. So that means there might be more drug-drug interactions, just like with HIV. And it has interactions with acid-suppressing medicines. That's one of the pretest questions. Um, it works. Eight weeks and 12 weeks. Nice. So let's ask another question. This is a newer agent called Softvelvox. Softvelvox. Now, interestingly, it's a buvir, an asvir, and a previr. It's kind of got them all together. And so the questions are, you can read them. Go ahead and vote. A. This is before uh, Richie Cunningham became a director. Okay, let's see what we got. Hmm. Actually, uh, this is actually a question that Susanna Nagy wrote that's very nuanced. So it is a 12-week regimen for the most part. Um, it's really developed mostly as a pan-genotypic uh, or it's really used most for resistant virus, especially genotype 3. That's kind of its niche. Um, I'm not sure that it is approved fully for all DAAs. That's what we were debating. And I don't think it's, because I don't think there were enough data in all the areas, um, but it's really a 12-week regimen. That's the take-home point. That's what it's mostly been worked up as. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a combo pill that I would think about using and treatment-resistant virus, especially genotype 3. And that's more of a nuance that we'll get into later. And you can see here that with uh, a number of the things, one in, genotype 1, which used to be very difficult to cure with interferon, it's relatively straightforward now, not so hard with a lot of the drugs. Genotype 2 has always been relatively easy to treat. Now genotype 3 is the bugaboo. That's the one that has got more of an Achilles heel with a number of the um, uh, DAA agents, but Softvelvox is especially good in genotype 3, even those with cirrhosis. So that's kind of the niche for this particular drug. And then the eight-week therapy uh, did not show non-inferiority, so that's why that one particular question was incorrect. Now, when you say what's difficult is that the drugs are so darn good that non-inferiority could be 90% active. <laughs> if I told you 
back 10 years ago, I got a regimen for you that's 90% active and we're getting 46% with, wow, hell yeah, I'll take that, right? But relatively speaking, the treatments are so good that um, you, uh, you, you know, it's 92%, all of a sudden looks not so good. And then uh, for DAA experience, like I mentioned, that's really the place where it, where it's going to work in, in most individuals, especially those with genotype 3. So, does failure, as they say in the South, does failure equal resistance? Sort of. Um, resistance can be seen without drug exposure. So sometimes there's just inherent polymorphisms that can infer. But the resistance-associated substitutions, which is what a RAS is, I have no idea why that was the agreed-upon nomenclature. I just would call it a resistant variant or a resistant mutant, but no. Um, these associated uh, substitutions don't necessarily impair treatment activity. So that's a huge difference than with HIV. So the resistance is not absolute. The characteristics um, um, are just, if not more important than uh, the RAS. So the patient matters more than the resistance mutation, and like cirrhosis or non-cirrhosis, um, et cetera. And not, so you don't do resistance testing before you treat people for most situations. And we'll go into a little bit of when you might, but as a rule of thumb, you don't. Here's a summary slide that I don't expect you to memorize. It's just to point out, mostly in my mind, that the NS5Bs hardly ever develop resistance, hardly ever. The NS5As, it's a problem because of the anchor medication, but the barrier to resistance is pretty high for the more recently produced drugs. That's the point of this slide. This is a nice little diagram that you can, you'll, you'll have all these slides, by the way, so you don't have to take a lot of notes if you don't want to, but, um, but you'll notice that uh, the, from GP, uh, this drug is an, is an uh, Asvir-type drug, NS5A, is pretty, pretty good about uh, not leading to resistance or not having loss of activity as opposed to some of the earlier uh, NS5A inhibitors. And finally, what does SVR really mean? You get somebody, you've treated them for 12 weeks or 8 weeks, whatever it is, and now you're three months later, maybe six months later, and there's no detectable virus, so they're just like that acutely infected person who cleared. What does that mean? Or as they say in Austin Powers, what does it all mean, Basil? So, it means good things. It means really good things. So, for example, um, this is looking at overall survival, okay? And these are the dark line of people who never got treated over years. And these are the ones with the dotted line at the top. Uh, so the, so the non-treated and the people who didn't respond to interferon, they don't do so well. <clears throat> but people who had an SVR, they do very well in terms of not dying as a rule of thumb. So that's one thing. And again, a lot of these data are back from the interferon era, but cure is cure is cure in my mind, no matter how you got there. So you can reduce dramatically the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma over time. Remember, that's about 4% a year. That drops after you cure them. But notice, it does not go to zero. 
So you, there's like 12 questions out of 10 on this pretest that you had. And it said, do you need to, if somebody had cirrhosis, are you done with them after a year? No, you've got to keep following them every six months with an ultrasound or so because they can develop hepatocellular carcinoma. And Arthur will go into this, but why every six months? Because the doubling time of liver cancer is about three to four months. And if you wait a year or so, you can get a lesion that gets really big because you might not be able to detect it till it's a centimeter. And if it doubles three or four times before you check again, it may become of such a size that um, treatment isn't possible through surgery. Uh, or and you end up having to have to transplant or just palliate. So liver failure also drops dramatically with cure. On and on and on. It's just good. It's a good thing. Does the, does the fibrosis reverse? Eh, a little bit. But it doesn't take away cirrhosis necessarily. But it will reduce the amount of chance of decompensation. Um, and it, again, it doesn't take away the total um, uh, possibility of hepatocellular carcinoma in those who are cirrhotic. And this, this is the money slide again. This is a different way. The reason that we're impaired in treating everyone is because the drugs cost a lot. At least, but the good news is over the last three years, the cost is coming down nicely. It just needs to come down a little bit more. But as the cost and the prices come down, Insurance companies are opening up their um, approvals uh, much more than they had before, but for those who are uninsured, still got to struggle a bit. You can apply for compassionate use drug, Medicaid varies state to state, uh, but that's one of the barriers that we have. We can talk about that more later if you'd like. So that's it for the intro. Questions? Thoughts? Yes, good mic. So the question is, is it, uh, I guess we have to look at cost effectiveness of ultrasounds every six months in a huge population of patients. And once they've achieved SVR, is it still that urgency given the fact that there is some improvement in their liver? Is there still that need to be sort of strict with six months? Yeah, let, let, me, let me clarify a little bit. It's only those who have cirrhosis. Right. Only right. those with cirrhosis. So right. the majority of people... Once, you're, once you declare them cured, give them a hominy domini and send them out the door, you don't need to see them again for that. They're cured, done. Wipe your hands, except, unless they get reinfected, which is Arthur's talk. Um, right. <laughs> well, Jen has one or two, yeah. Um, and, but, but yes, because it, it probably is cost effective because it, 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 there's enough incidents where it probably, if it were, you know, one of us, you know, or a mom or dad or something, you'd want to know, right? I think it's one thing. I'm just saying that the fibrosis, the liver does improve a little bit. It does. Right, it does. Yeah. And so the rapidity with which it gets to hepatocellular carcinoma, we'll probably know in five, six years' time, is it the same rapidity or has it slowed it's, down? Oh, no, it's definitely slowed down. And the, the overall incidence is less, right. much less. But it still happens. That's the take-home point. It didn't go to zero. But maybe over time, maybe over the next 10 years, the recommendations will change. But for now, yeah, other questions? All right, we'll move on to 
hepatology. And Arthur, in honor of the hepatologist, is wearing a coat and tie. I am, yeah. All right, let's give Mike a hand. Um, I know at least one of you has known him a long time, and um, it's pretty clear to me that he would have had a nice career in show business if he wanted to in some way. 